everyone, welcome to a brand new episode of the Behold Podcast on the Genre Equality channel. I'm Hitzer. I'm Isa. And this is a special episode because it's a Pride Month special for our favorite LGBTQI plus uh, films, uh, which includes uh, American game changes like Moonlight and Brokeback Mountain, uh, mm-hmm. alongside stuff mm-hmm. from other places in the world, such as Chile's uh, Transgender um, indie masterpiece, A Fantastic Woman, alongside uh, Francis, Blue is the Warmest Color. Um, these are just some of the many uh, favorites that we have in the LGBTQ genre, shall we say, you know, that spotlight um, same sex or transgender love stories and stuff like that, you know. Um, but besides our main topics here, right? Like, mm. um, let me throw it to you, Aisa. Um, besides our main topics, what are some of the other LGBTQ stories that stick out in your mind or have you know um, influenced you over the years? Uh, I think I uh, while I was just kind of figuring that out, I think Happy Together is a big one for me. Mm, okay. Uh, so Happy Together, Wong Kawai, I think it's like nineteen ninety seven. Yeah. Uh, with uh, Tony Leung and um, who, I can't remember who the other actor is. What's mm-hmm. his name? What's his name? Yeah, but I think that stands out uh, for me with that. Uh, it does. Um, like there are portions of like a kind of like blue or the warmest color that do feel a lot like Happy Together. Mm. Uh, just in terms of like um the very visual appeal of it, you know, uh, and 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 just the way that Wonka White decided to shoot that. So there are moments in time like that. Uh, yep. Things that we've recently discussed that really stand out to me, Euphoria, for example. I think uh, Hunter Schaefer's uh, Jules Vaughn as a transgender girl has been yep. like one of those kind of like standout performances Definitely. Uh, for me as well. Uh, how about you? Well, I mean, we've also discussed um, Portrait of a Lady on Fire already, right? In, mm. uh, on another, you guys can check that out. Uh, it's one in our older Behold um, episodes. Oh, 100%. Yeah, yeah. Um, if it wasn't for the fact that we have already discussed Portrait of the Lady on Fire, yeah. um, it, would be, it would have been our main topic here because yeah. I think, in my <laughs> opinion, with, with no disrespect to like, the four amazing films here, like, I feel like Portrait of the Lady on Fire is the best film yeah. uh, of the LGBTQ, I guess, theme that, that you can, you can uh, pick out. You know? mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, other films that, are, that uh, I really like, um, here's a problematic one, but I like it anyway. Uh, Call Me By Your Name, um, mm. which is problematic because of you know, Ami Hammer's uh, recent controversies. Uh, yeah. And also because like, the character that Timothy Chalamet plays was underage, you know. Uh, but still a remarkable film. Um, I really love Luca Giudacchino. Yeah. I thought, you know, he filmed it uh, beautifully and the performances were spectacular. Uh, and it was, you know, naturalistic in, in the way that I like my films to be. Um, otherwise, you know, um, Carol, which stars Rooney Mara and Kate Blanchett, is a mm. really good lesbian oh. um, film as well. Yeah, I um, love that. Yeah, Phil Duffer back in the 80s with Tom Hanks and Denzel mm. Washington um, about the AIDS crisis, you know. Uh, was yeah. probably a, a groundbreaker in terms of Hollywood uh, for that kind of representation and, mm-hmm. and to get, a sh- uh, uh, I guess, a spotlight la, on the AIDS victims who the media and the medical community so like cruelly ignored. Um, Paris is Burning, you know, the documentary about oh, yeah. um, the, drag, the drag ball scene in New York. 
really mm-hmm. great. You know, Pose, you know, can be put up with that as well. Pose was a recent FX TV series by Ryan Murphy about that same scene, yeah. which was really good too. Uh, yeah, I mean, there's, there's actually a lot of uh, great representation out there if you just take the time to, to go and find it. You know? mm, yeah, for sure, for sure. Yeah, definitely. Um, also on, on the same subject, uh, something that we've recently talked about on Behold as well, Feel Good, mm. uh, also a really good uh, representation of, you know, um, same-sex relationships and the difficulties of it. Although, like, you know, the, the topics that it, it addresses are much broader than, yeah. you know, uh, ho- um, homosexuality, you know, it's about comedy, it's about addiction. But it is a, a big part of that, particularly with uh, May Martin's uh, yeah. relationship uh, with... Yeah, correct, you know, and also like, you know, her girlfriend is like formerly straight and now bi and now, you know, so it's mm-hmm. it's a lot about, you know, discussing the complexities of sexual identity, like, which, you know, can't be narrowed down to labels. Yeah. Uh, and I think that's a really good uh, example of that as well. But, mm-hmm. you know, let's delve into, uh, well, are there any other things you want to mention before we delve into? Oh, no, topics? I was just going to say that uh, Feel Good is back, all right, season two. Feel Good is back on Netflix, that's right, on season two. It's very good. It's uh, it's the second and final season, by the way. Oh, really? Uh, yeah, so it's only two seasons. Um, Netflix originally wanted to cancel it because of low viewership, but, you know, uh, gave May Martin six extra episodes to kind of wrap up the story, and I think it did so very well. Nice, nice, cool. I haven't caught it yet, so I'm looking forward to that. Oh, yeah, yeah, definitely. So if you haven't seen Feel Good, one of the... Uh, I think we spotlighted it as one of the 2020's best underrated TV gems. You mm-hmm. know? Yeah. Uh, and if you haven't seen it, do check it out on Netflix. Uh, I would I would highly recommend it. It's one in the current crop of like great dramedies out there, made by really sad comedians. Uh, <laughs> you know, <laughs> your your Atlantas and Fleabags and whatnot. You know. Yeah. Uh, so it, it's very it's very much in that vein. Uh, okay, let's begin with. Uh, let me let me read my card here. Oh, it says La La Land, but actually. It's Moonlight. Let's begin with Moonlight. Oh, uh, <laughs> that joke never gets old. Um, yeah, let's begin with Moonlight. Uh, Barry Jenkinson's, uh, Jenkins's uh, beautiful, sensitive, coming-of-age story, which is pretty much told in passages, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, and each of its three parts, I think, possess enough standalone power to operate as a wonderful short film, you know, in, in, oh, yeah. in a vacuum, you know? Absolutely. Um, even though, like, as a whole, it proves much greater than the sum of its parts, you know? Uh, and I think, like, after the, the kind of time lapse, it came out 2016, right? It's the same year that Boyhood came out, you know? So after the, the, the time lapse miracle of Boyhood, like, any movie hoping to depict someone growing mm-hmm. up on screen kind of <laughs> has its work cut out for it, you know? But, but watching Chiron, yeah. the main character of Moonlight, change from a bullied nine-year-old boy played by Alex R. Hibbert to a gawky teenager played by Ashton Sanders to a quiet, muscular man played by Trevante Rhodes, it's easy to believe that we're seeing the same person throughout, you know, the same yeah. shy and taciturn kid, uncomfortable in his own skin, living in his own head. Uh, the actors don't particularly look much alike, but they create a continuity of performance uh, and, and, and a whole spectrum uh, to this multi-dimensional person. You know, it's such a tender, heartbreaking story of a young man's struggle to, to find himself taught across three defining chapters in his life yeah. as he experiences the ecstasy, pain, beauty of falling in love while trying to grapple with his own sexuality and and key to this that that, that, aren't, that hasn't been explored too much in cinema is the, the idea of male masculinity within the black community mm-hmm. uh which doesn't get enough of a spotlight like in gay stories which are primarily about white men uh mm-hmm. so that's where barry jenkins shines in moonlight we recently talked about you know his uh 
his uh, recent TV series on Amazon Prime, The Underground yep. Railroad. But, you know, between The Underground Railroad or If Bill Street Could Talk, Moonlight still represents peak Barry Jenkins. Yeah, for uh, sure. And I think for very good reason, you know. Um, it's been a few years since since I've seen Moonlight and, and you have as well. Uh, what are your, what are your like, lingering thoughts on Moonlight in, in the years it, since it has become an, a Best Picture winner and such a cult classic? Uh, I mean, like, for me, the, the standout thing is definitely Mashallah Ali, right? Yes. Like, he He's only there for a third of the film. Mm-hmm. Uh, but his presence kind of lingers, you know, throughout, like, kind of everything that, that uh, throughout the entire span of the film, right? Like, even in chapter two or chapter three, um, past his death, uh, like, we still feel his presence there. And it's just because I think the performance that he gives as um, one, is it one? Yes, mm-hmm. as as uh, as one is so kind of like impactful, right? Like it's it's a it's a singular performance that leaves an imprint on the audience just as much as it leaves an imprint on the young Chiron, mm-hmm. uh, and and that kind of follows us throughout, right? Like his his whole um, purpose within the story as a father figure kind of like plays out in in a very deep and impactful way, despite the fact that runtime wise he's really only there for like a third of the film. Yeah, to, um, to the point where Sharon it basically becomes him in a third act. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> essentially. Um, yeah. The I think just the moments with um, with with uh, Ali and um, what is is it uh, and Alexibet as mm-hmm. as Kit, especially at the beach and all the conversations that kind of have these little asides where he's mentoring. I guess you know it's very kind of like. Uh, um, very lost kind of 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 moments where uh when when an older man kind of like initiates a uh, 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 a younger a younger boy kind of into um into you know like becoming a man like and he does so in a way that's very open right like whether or not it's sharing about his own kind of past life uh when mm-hmm. when he was in Cuba or whether or not it's um teaching him swimming or just you know explaining to him um that it's okay right like to be gay right like no one no one should should be putting you down because of that like i think all these moments are just kind of like critical moments that set mm-hmm. the basis for the rest of the film yeah. um yeah and, and and of course like you said earlier like it is entirely believable that these are just the same person right like these three mm-hmm. actors are just the same person across the entire timeline um yeah i, I also want to shout out the mom um, Naomi mm-hmm. Naomi Harris, great mm. performance. I think, especially as the film progresses, right? Yeah. Um, just as like her her crack addiction hits in in chapter two, or even mm-hmm. like the very very moving, heartbreaking, uh, conversation that they have as she's recovering in a, in 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 um in uh, therapy. Yeah, uh, in rehab. Like, yeah. Yeah, in rehab, like that. That really kind of like hit some very very raw spots mm-hmm. um yeah very good stuff yeah i mean uh nicholas brittle who um is barry jenkins's long long-term, long-time composer mm. um does such extraordinary work here as Agreed. he does in if will street could talk and the underground Railroad as well you know his weird like strings uh, yeah. which are ominous but delicate as well are so perfect for this kind of you know intimate story you know <laughs> um like at the at the start you know like chiron who's played by alex Hibbert, like you know, he doesn't know he's gay. He he yeah. he's in a very uh, impoverished background. Uh, his mother abandons him because of the crack addiction. Uh, bullies call him little and mock him relentlessly 
beats him up, you know, makes fun of the way he walks and stuff like that. Uh, and at school, like, he has this one friend, uh, Kevin, played by Jaden Piner, um, who pushes him to fight back, you know, um, yeah. which becomes his own little mini tragic arc when, you know, Kevin turns on him in the second act and then yeah. he reunites with him in the third, you know. Um, fantastic storytelling, you know, and then you move on to him at 16 where he's played by Ashton Sanders. He's like nothing but skin and bones and mm-hmm. exposed nerve endings. He's so unsure of who he is. Um, Teresa, played by Janelle Mooney, who is uh, Mahasha Ali's uh, character's uh, wife, you know, uh, sort of takes him in then, you know. Uh, yeah. And then and then you catch up with Sharon like a decade later and the decade-long <laughs> lapse is, is a shock, you know. The, the extraordinary, like, Travanti Road to embodies the role like he's some sort of like street gladiator <laughs> you know like com- complete with like diamond earrings and gold grills like we at first don't recognize him and at yep. first me me even assume that it's a, a poor casting choice mm-hmm. you know but then like when he begins speaking and talking and acting you see the flashes of Chiron in him you know yeah and then yep. and then it makes it known that it's not a bad casting choice but an inspired casting choice you know, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know um, Chiron has traded in Miami for Atlanta has his own mini drug empire you know but he gets a call from Kevin you know uh, played in played by the standout Andre Holland who has since gone on to do a lot of great things himself you know then brings yeah. him home for a visit and the lingering long third act scene between the two of them the, the jaded ex-con and, and the divorced father running a diner is so fragile and fiercely moving uh, mm-hmm. you know in eloquent silences you know there's not even much dialogue there it's yeah. all mi- micro expressions and 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 facial uh, features you know that, that uh, no detail is left uncovered even though they don't speak much you know what you're thinking you know what you're feeling you know um what needs to be said about the movie however is that like it ha- it's it has kind of a hard shell but it never conceals the the delicacy of feeling underneath you know yeah. there's drugs and gang violence and poverty it's always present there's bullying you know but but Jenkins, as he's wont to do, creates uh, cinematic poetry from landscape and faces, you know, mm. uh, out of Chiron's uh, failed efforts and then successful efforts in the end. You know, he, he builds a wall in his heart and, and it's only Kevin who's able to kind of penetrate that like, in the end. Um, the actors are uniformly superb. Everyone is. You know? yeah. they're, they're, they're all great. Um, James Laxton, who is the cinematographer, his, his sinuous camera work, is amazing. The soulful score from from Nicholas Brito, as I mentioned, mm-hmm. uh, really adds to the dynamic. Uh, and Barry Jenkins, Jenkins himself, you know, uh, really announced himself as a director to be reckoned with and a force of uh, of Hollywood's future. Here, uh, yeah. it's it's both an intimate and epic film. Uh, one of the best of the twenty tens, in my opinion. Yes, for sure. I mean, mm-hmm. like it's definitely. How how do you even you know consider La La Land? Right, like again, something like like is is it's something that you know still puzzles me to this day. I mean, it's been so many years since that gas kind of happened, but still, mm-hmm. right? Like, um, I I feel that Moonlight is definitely the best thing that Barry Jenkins has done. You know, uh, and and you can always kind of come back to this, um, you know, whether or not you like Underground Railroad, whether uh, whether or not you like Tales from Bill Street, like yeah. Moonlight is like singularly the best thing that he's done and at the same time the most Barry Jenkins thing that he's done mm-hmm. um, you know so like moving forward it'll be super interesting to see because I think he has such a, a very he has a very interesting eye for framing yeah. things uh, yeah. and, and he's developing a very I mean now especially like just watching Underground Railroad recently it's mm-hmm. very obvious that it's him 
right? Yeah, uh, he has a unique style and rhythm and and, and visual uh, cues and everything. Yeah, yeah, uh, which is which is which is great, and it's kind of refreshing. I, I think just because you know a lot of famous directors get into kind of like. Uh, the the grand scheme of things, right? Like they, you know, your Scorsese's and and so on and so forth, right? Like you immediately spot their style, but it becomes mm-hmm. tired and becomes a kind of like a joke of itself. Uh, but so far with everything that Jenkins has done, like as as much as is identifiable, it doesn't mm-hmm. feel done or it doesn't feel like overused. And mm-hmm. uh, I th- I think that's kind of exciting. Yeah, yeah, indeed. Uh, same here. I look forward to everything that Barry Jenkins uh will do. And yeah. I have, you know, caught up on his filmography. It's all kind of uniformly great. It's very him. As you said, he has a signature style mm-hmm. that is um, not easily parodied, at least not yet. La. We haven't seen <laughs> enough of it to, to, to make it like a, an Arasonkin parody or Joss Whedon. Like, you know, like you yeah. know their styles and it's easy to kind of make fun of it. Yeah. Uh, but for, with Barry Jenkins, it's still really difficult, you know, um, primarily because of the quality of it, you know. And, mm-hmm. and it's so unique. Uh, his rhythms are so difficult to capture, you know. Uh, and and his big insights on you know identity, race, culture, and sexuality—they are all told in such very small, heart-rending character studies at its center. Yeah. Uh, you know, and, and Moonlight is pretty much the the perfect encapsulation of that. Mm-hmm, definitely, definitely. Yeah. It's just these amazing kind of like vignettes of vulnerable moments uh, mm. of, of of his characters yeah. that are so enchanting. Right, mm-hmm. like it, it, it allows you to see, um, these characters for what, who they are and what they are, and what they're going through at that moment in time, and and oftentimes that's a very difficult thing to do, you mm. know, in in cinema. Um, it's not something that is is necessarily a given, and it requires like a confluence of both like the director's vision and and the music and all of that, and uh, an outstanding performance all around from whoever it is the camera is trained on, um, yeah. and I think like consistently. Uh, especially in Moonlight, like Jenkins manages that, and it, it it's a it's a feat in in and of itself. Yeah, hundred percent. You know, like the when you tackle like issue films, you know, quote unquote issue films, uh, yeah. but it is a tendency to maybe make your protagonist a symbol of an abstract idea. Mm. You know, like like oh, this is the representation of the AIDS crisis, or this is the representation of this person, or poverty, or blah blah blah. You know, like the 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 trick is to also make them a human being too. You know, yeah, uh, and and a unique human being at that. You know, and you know, uh, Moonlight. I feel like is this is this distinctive because you know it doesn't. Uh, it isn't emotionally manipulative. Mm. It doesn't. It isn't like a relentless assault on your tear ducts. You know, it's not like a tear choker. <laughs> you know, like like some of the Oscar beat films typically are. It has more to do with like restraint and, mm. and quiet honesty and fluid imagery and and a, an observant, uncompromised way of of like kind of imagining uh, an outsider's view of a world that makes you empathetic to an experience that I've never experienced. You know? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah, quietly radical. Um, yeah, you know, like I was a huge fan of La La Land back in twenty sixteen. Like I still <laughs> love that film. I watch it all the time. But For it shouldn't sure. have it shouldn't have won the best picture, like, and it didn't, like, thank God. Yeah. yeah. I mean, like, absolutely, but it's just different, right? Like in terms yeah. of it's an enjoyable film, it has its own message, all of that. Mm-hmm. I, I I think like Stone and, and Gosling did a great job in that, but there's something special about Moonlight, right? Like, mm. this feels like a film that came uh, in the right time. 
Yeah. Uh, you know, uh, and, and for the and it, it was a film for the moment, lah. That that should be recognized as such. You know. Yeah. Uh, whereas La La Land, as good as it was, right? And I and I do enjoy it, and I still like you. I have rewatched it a number of times. Mm-hmm. It it it's not of the same caliber, in my humble opinion. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So. Yeah. Yeah. Hopefully, we um, can put that to rest. Oh, 100%, yeah, <laughs> definitely. You know, um, similar in the vein to Moonlight. Let's move on to uh, Ang Lee's uh, Brokeback Mountain, mm. uh, which is uh, probably. Uh, one of the best westerns I've ever seen, uh, yeah. and also a groundbreaking masterpiece when it first came out in the December of two thousand five, I believe. You know, uh, and it's still stunning today as yeah. a universal love story trapped in an unforgiving or hateful time. I think like Ang Lee's film is worth watching again and again, even in the years since, mm-hmm. to witness the importance of, I guess, not merely tolerance but of questionable acceptance you know but mm-hmm. i think by any measure brokeback mountain was a groundbreaking masterpiece you know yeah uh, it starred heath ledger and jake gyllenhaal um as two cowboys whose uh, secret and forbidden love affair uh burns through many years of their lives you know uh and in addition to being one of the greatest love stories ever captured on film uh brokeback mountain introduced the world to the fact that gay cowboys and gay ranches exist you know, mm. um, even in a bastion, as I mentioned, of hypermasculinity that is the American Western, or at least the stereotype of it that's been presented yeah. uh, in, in mass media. It's actually based on a short story by Annie Proulx, which I've not read, but you know, I'm assuming it's great too. Me neither. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and it was ad- adapted for the screen and produced by Larry McCurdy and his uh, longtime writing partner, Diana Osana. Uh, the two of them won the Best Adapted Screenplay, as they should have won. Golden Globe Award, Writers Guild Award, and Ang Lee won a huge, uh, you know, plethora of awards for Bobby Martin. Yeah, uh, which was surprising at the time because you know, like unlike the 2010s, I think in the 2000s, uh, gay represent- representation wasn't like you know still wasn't there. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's this is a fantastic, different look at the American West uh, yeah. and the deconstruction of it. You know, it's, it it's since been deconstructed by many many other people, Chloe Zhao, for example. You know, mm. um, and this is, I think, they, this kind of uh, started the whole trend of like deconstructing uh, the masculinity of westerns. Uh, yeah. By by telling a gay story, you know, um, it's been what 15, 20 years since uh, we saw *Brokeback Mountain*. Like, what are your lingering uh, thoughts on it? Uh, <clears throat> I I mean, like, even as we were just talking about, I think it's kind of fascinating that. Um, we've we've just talked about Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, right? Being one of yeah. the first kind of like wuxia films to break kind of mainstream Hollywood, mm. and then on the other hand, we also have Brokeback Mountain, which is kind of like, well, I wouldn't say it's the first film, uh, for yeah. sure, but it definitely made a lot of ground as far as gay reputation goes, uh, gay gay films go in in Hollywood as well, right? Uh, yeah. For it to become the kind of like the first step. Uh, for it to be more acceptable in in mainstream media at the time in two thousand five, mm-hmm. um, you know, so just one of those like tangential thoughts of that. Um, mm-hmm. Oh man, did I watch? I I believe I watched Brokeback Mountain in cinemas. Uh, I did, yeah, yeah, and uh, it was um, to me going into this, I had absolutely no idea what the story was going to be about, mm. um, and. Uh, at that point, I don't think I was aware that there there would be, you know, kind of like a gay story interwoven into that. I don't think it was marketed as such. 
uh, I don't think that they no not in they, Singapore because yeah. all, because obvious obviously reasons, yeah, yeah and all of that right so for me for, to go in and kind of watch it and like that like it was surprising yeah. um, but what I found what I found to be the case and I think it also had to do with the fact that during that particular period of time I was doing a lot of like uh, writing papers about like Shakespeare love stories and things like that right so your Romeo and Juliet and, and so on and so forth kind of like these um, tragedies of, of of much grander scale within the literary canon mm-hmm. um, you know and it felt Brokeback Mountain felt a lot like that right like spending like uh, spending a, a lifetime of mm-hmm. complex um, love and loss and emotion that you know these characters as they go through have to to deal with and sort through and, and fight out um, and it is the formula for an, ama- uh, an amazing and impactful love story mm-hmm. right like regardless of whether the fact whether it's gay or whether it's straight and all that but because of um, the story that it told for its time I think Broadway Mountain became an extremely important film yeah. um, in that time yeah, yeah, you know, like, I think when Brokeback Mountain, uh, again, you know, uh, not to bring back the Oscars again, but Brokeback Mountain lost the <laughs> 2006 Best Picture Oscar race to Crash, yeah. which is, you know, probably the biggest uh, fuck-up that the Oscars have ever done <laughs> since maybe Shakespeare in Love beat Saving Private Ryan back in 1985, you know. Yeah. Uh, that was, look, like, that 1995 <laughs> race had Pulp Fiction, it yeah. had Saving Private Ryan, and you picked Shakespeare in Love, which is not a bad film. I, li- I like it, but you yeah, know. Yeah, but I mean, again, it's not like. Uh, Correct. It's, so, yeah. Brokeback Mountain, like, uh, this is when, like, what, like, I was still younger, I was in my teens, so I was following the Oscars more closely. This is when I, like, I first came to the realization that the Oscars are shit, you know. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and know, I think they've like, consistently proven that. Correct, you know. But at the same time, you know, the, the critical community and the fan community does understand uh, that Brokeback Mountain was the most important film of that year and the best film of that year and continues to break ground for the LGBTQ community in the same way, I guess, as I mentioned, Philadelphia did uh, more mm. than a decade earlier. Uh, yeah. Philadelphia, you know, brought the AIDS discussion to mainstream audiences. You know, it earned Tom Hanks his first Oscar. Um, and, and, and Brokeback similarly, you know, got the, the same kind of attention in the mainstream press, you know. The actual love story part of uh of Brobat Mountain meeting Jack and Ennis, right? It's it's a really simple, you know, despite difficult circumstances and it happens yeah. quickly. Um Brobat Mountain kind of takes a different approach to other love stories or other gay stories. Like mm-hmm. it's not a twist or anything. The yeah. main characters like have sex before the the first act even wraps up, you know. Mm-hmm. So it allows the viewers to uh to linger in the established love for the rest of the movie, you know. And, and this decades long nuanced relationship presented to a mass audience kind of altered the way the mass, uh, the the casual fans felt about gay romance, and I kind, I kind of reflected a, a growing broader societal shift yeah. in favor of gay rights, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and while that shift has panned out in some respects, there's still like you know obviously a lot more work to done, uh, to, to be done. And what I really loved about Broadway Mountain was that it didn't just focus on the harm that societal pressures cause to gay people. You know, obviously. Um, Jack and Ennis are forced to stay in the closet because of societal pressures and yeah. you know, expectations of them in the West and everything, you know. But uh, it also causes harm to to the to their loved ones, their wives, their children, you know. Um, this was the first movie that I've ever seen Michelle Williams in, uh, mm. who has obviously since gone on to become like <laughs> you know, uh, like god level actor, like you know. You've seen her in Blue Valentine. You've seen yeah. her in Sinedaki, New York. 
you've seen her in like so many great things. Lah. Um, perhaps Venom is not the best representation of her work, but you know, she, <sighs> well, she's, a, she's a great actor in general. Besides yeah. that, like, and she's gone on to do amazing, uh, amazing stuff. Uh, besides Venom, <laughs> uh, but yeah, like Michelle Williams had a very small role in this, but I'm glad that you know the effects of staying closeted. You know, it doesn't it doesn't just affect like the men; it affects you know the people that they choose to be with. Yeah. And, it, and and Michelle Williams's small yet yet powerful role in this uh really sold me on that. You know, like you know, uh, and it really introduced Michelle Williams to me, uh, who has since become one of my favorite actresses. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, for yeah. sure, for sure. Stand yeah, up. I actually come to think about it, there were so many kind of like stars uh, in this movie. Anne Hathaway mm-hmm. was there, David Harbour was too. there, Kate Mara mm-hmm. was there, a yeah. very young Kate Mara actually. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, like, I mean, obviously, it's been oh, it's been years since I've watched this, so maybe almost a decade, maybe or more. When did 2005? Yeah. It's been a long, long time. So, like, a lot of these other characters kind of fade into the background, right? I think, like, what stands out for me really has to be, like, just a lot of the scenes that are are, are played out against, like, this amazing kind of scenery, mm-hmm. right? Like, it's, it's majestic with the mountains and, and the fields and all of that. And then just these two men, right? Like, being who they are in that particular moment. And, of course, like, you know, the closet with the with the shirts. Um, oh yeah, yeah. Just kind of like standout moments for me, um, and and a lot of feelings about this that have remained despite the fact that I have not watched it in quite a while. Oh, same, you know. But like, it, it still like has a lingering effect on me. Yeah. Um, Robert Martin. I think the reason I have been rewatched it as often as I should is for the same reason that you don't rewatch like Schindler's List. You know. Yeah. What I mean? It's it's so painful. Like it. Just because I don't really watch it doesn't mean I don't consider it great or important. No, absolutely. But, like, but some films are just like too painful to like you know keep viewing. You know? Yeah, Schindler's List, of course, an important film about you know, um, you know, like uh, the Holocaust and Twelve Years of Slave, an important film about slavery. You know, it's just not something that you want to put on on like a Friday night when you're like hanging yeah. out with your friends. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, like the, the the pain that Jack and Ennis feel, the felt the fact that one of them fell victim to the to a hate crime at the end. You know, it's just. Not an easy watch, but its mm-hmm. legacy and impact impact would be continue and continues to be lauded like, as as a landmark in LGBT cinema, yeah. uh, and it's and it's credited for influencing influencing several films and television shows to to start you know showcasing more LGBT themes and characters you know, mm-hmm. uh, and and that is the long lasting legacy of Ang Lee's Brokeback Mountain, yeah. uh, and I mean Joker aside, it's also Heath Ledger's best performance. Mm-hmm. Um, Jake Gyllenhaal, who I, it's hard for me to say what Jake Gyllenhaal's be- best performance is because he's been in so many great things, you know, from like his early roles to Donnie Darko, yeah, to to Brokeback Mountain, to Nightcrawler. Jake Gyllenhaal is just such a chame- chameleon, and like every time I see him, like, oh, this, is, <laughs> this is Jake Gyllenhaal's best performance, and that's yeah. just a credit to to like he brings it a hundred percent of the time. Yeah, uh, what well, what an incredible cast, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. It's kind of crazy, like Anna Faris and all of that. Uh, for yeah. me, I think Gyllenhaal. I think he has to be Nightcrawler. Yeah, uh, but then again, maybe nocturnal animals. I don't know. Um, uh, a lot, a lot. That's you could pick anyone, and there's a legit, like, arguable case for it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mysterio. Let's just call it Mysterio. He's he was best as Mysterio, and, and <laughs> just like Michelle Williams should not be judged by him. <laughs> <laughs> exactly right. Um, yeah. yeah, a phenomenal show. Um, if you have not watched it, 
Um, mm-hmm. Please do. I, I believe you can find it on Netflix now. Yeah. Uh, let me just check. Yes. Yes. Broke my mouth that is now on Netflix. Mm-hmm. And you can see it on its glory. Um, but yeah, important, important film. Yet, yet another kind of like monumental kind of seminal film from Ang Lee. Yes. Again. Um, yeah. I mean, what has happened to Ang Lee in the last like five to ten years, man? Like, the last couple of stuff he's made like has just what? not not been it, you know? What was the last thing he made actually? Um, it was that Will Smith movie, the one with the, like the different frame rate. You know, what I mean, the one where the Will Smith like fights his younger clone. Oh, Gemini, Gemini, Gemini Man. Man. Yeah, what a terrible film! Uh, it's horrible. I mean, you know, good good on him for like. He, I I think he's done his part. Like he's pulled his weight. He's done his part for cinema. Right. Um. I yeah. I really really don't think that anything. Was that that? Uh, Life like, of Pi. No. Life of Pi was okay, but it wasn't yeah. great. Yeah. You know, uh, uh, Last Caution was okay, but I think Brokeback Mountain was the last truly great film that he made. Yeah, great. Great. Yeah. Oh, there was Hulk between Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon and Brokeback. Yeah, yeah. Brokeback was his uh, return to prominence. Mm. Mm. Yeah, everything else. Okay, I, uh, Last Caution was pretty good. Uh, okay. Yeah, Last Caution is pretty good. Life of Pi is good, but you know, like, greatness is... He hasn't had one like, in like a decade. <laughs> Oh well, uh, we'll see. We'll see. I don't know if he's attached to anything new, uh, at the moment. Yeah, yeah. I'm. I'm not sure either. I like Angli. I sort of lost faith in him. Sort of like uh, and like M Night Shyamalan, for example. It's just like I respect him at his earlier work. It's just uh, I'm not eager to see his next one. Uh, to be honest. Yeah. Well. Yeah. We'll Gemini Man was such a letdown. <laughs> well, anyways, yeah. Uh, let's move on from America. You know, they gave people all over the world, uh, yeah. or lesbian people, or transgender people. Uh, let's next move on to Chile, and I'm going to be talking about Chilean masterpiece, A Fantastic Woman, mm. which I felt was a stirring study of you know grief and dignity and the trans experience in in general. You know, um, yeah. It, it actually deservedly won the best foreign language film at uh at the Academy Awards the the year that it competed, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh it's directed by Sebastian Lilio. Uh and it is a powerful transgender transgender drama that that you know finally uh well it, it took like a couple of years to reach Singapore shores. I, yeah. I caught it at the projector, but I finally caught it and it was it was great. Um and if its Oscar triumph isn't enough to convince you to give the sublime film a chance uh perhaps you know like our review might change your mind mm-hmm. uh in its native language it's called una mujer fantastica i probably butchered that you know uh, but it begins in santiago chile with a character named uh, marina played by daniela vega uh, and orlando played by francisco reyes uh, a couple uh, com- uh, a, a committed couple in a very loving relationship <laughs> uh but after a romantic birthday celebration the elder gentleman uh, is gravely stricken with an aneurysm before passing away suddenly. Yeah. Uh, and as if this wasn't already a devastating enough turn, her lover's death would only be the start of a series of upsetting events for the distraught Marina, yeah. uh, a transgender woman in, in, in Chile. You know? You know, as a trans woman, Marina finds that everything she does is, is caught into question by a callous society. Her genuine relationship with Orlando is is doubted by the mm-hmm. doctors at the hospital. Yeah. Um, the police are suspicious of her role in Orlando's death. And even her right to grieve for the man that she loved is denied by Orlando's estranged family. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's a ver- verite journey with Marina. Uh, and, and we see uh, her encountering a string of discourtesies 
and humiliation. So for the next few days, you know, every interaction finds her slurred, demeaned, and sometimes even threatened. Uh, you know, the, the early on the film presents this tranquil privacy. This and, and soft neon of the film's comforting early scenes, you know, they mm-hmm. die alongside Orlando, and then yeah. the, the harsh light, the, the different color palette of the wider world intrudes to challenge her at every existence, you know. Um, at one point, uh, even the, the joyless business of tidying up affairs necessitates an encounter with Orlando's bitter ex-wife, uh, Sonia, yeah. uh, whose, whose thin facade of civility quickly crumbles into into disgust you know when when she says you know when i look at you i don't know what i'm seeing which is such an insulting thing to say Mm -hmm. uh but despite marina's circumstances i think director lilio's naturalistic narrative avoids caricatures of grief or the heavy-handed messages of prejudice in favor of a more nuanced character study of loss and defiance in the face of indignity uh i think many filmmakers might indulge in oppression porn with a premise such as this but Lilio is careful to pepper Marina's unexpected journey with instances of hope and decency, uh, kind exchanges, you know, with Marina's music teacher and even Orlando's surprisingly understanding brother, Gabo. They offer glimpses of humanity. And then there's mm-hmm. the flourishes, uh, vibrant sequences of magical surrealism, which I really love, you know. Yeah. Um, a nightclub rave turns into a hallucination a hallucinatory dance sequence set to techno, um, a stylized tracking shot of Marina powering through hurricane-level winds mm-hmm, in the streets mm-hmm. you know, presents us with gorgeous symbolism. Um, I think in particular, the film makes liberal use of mirrors as metaphors for identity, sexuality, and bereavement yeah. with several beautifully composed uh, reflection shots during key scenes. You know, uh, I-, I found this to be like an immersive uh, honestly, with a powerhouse performance from transgender actress Daniela Vega. Uh, what do you think about it, having seen it very recently? Outstanding performance by Daniela Vega. Seriously. Yeah. Uh, so, so, so good. Yeah. Um, I think what hit me the most is that it, it is so much more difficult for uh, Marina to do the things that are already difficult things, right? Mm. Like, you know, at no moment in time is she allowed to have the space to grieve. Mm. Uh, society doesn't allow her that. The, the places that you visit, the hospital, the police station, the funeral home, the church, mm-hmm. you know, none of these places are welcoming to her, right? And it's not even, in, in, in those moments, it's not even about her, right? It's about a lover that she's lost, about yeah. a partner that she, she, she wants to grieve desperately but doesn't ever get a chance to uh, that we see because it's just a constant assault on her identity and on who she is and on her place in the world and her relationship with Orlando. Yeah. Um, and that is absolutely heartbreaking to watch unfold. But there is a quiet tenacity to mm. the way that she carries herself and mm-hmm. a tenderness and in which she goes about um standing her ground, right? That that is 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 riveting to watch. You know, and yep. I think like unlike unlike the other true films um, that we're talking on our slate today, this is this is the one film that is you know it's at a go. It doesn't stretch over your years. There's no, you know, mm. kind of like a uh, uh, time a uh, time break in between the story, and then just to kind of see that like we we see this in the in the few days of the aftermath of of the passing of her loved one, mm. and that brings an in immediacy. Mm. to her struggle that I feel 
is is a lot more present, right? Like it, it feels more more in the moment and um coupled with all the magical realism stuff. Like I love, love, love that scene where she's walking through the hurricane winds. Like mm-hmm. so, so timely and so poetic in that particular moment, yeah. uh, where it's situated that it really did it really did hit the spot uh for that. Same. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um it, it's a gorgeously short film. Uh I love the use of of color and kind of texture to kind of round out um you know the scenes that they're that um that they're placed in and all of that you know from the strange kind of like coldness of of the hospital and and the doctor's room um yeah. the kind of like griminess of the scene where um you know she's forced to 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 undress and to have photos taken of her yeah and and all of that like there's something so apt for each moment on camera for for the scene that they're playing out and that just further immerses you into you know a, a, a trans woman that's just trying to live her life like like she's trying to do human things um, yeah and that are that are important to 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 our lives right like you know mm-hmm. grieving of a loved one that's an important thing um but um through it all she fights for her right to feel lost Mm. And and to in the end grieve and to to sit with that grief and and eventually you know um, uh, rise from that. Uh, yeah. I'm really really glad that they decided to take a moment to show us, you know, um, the final scenes where you know she she she's with a dog and and she's uh, performing um, to to the auditorium. I think that was extremely important for a story like this, yeah. just to help us find closure. I think, mm. right? Because otherwise, it it just feels like like if if you can imagine like in the some of the darkest moments of a person's life when you have lost someone you love very very dearly, mm. right? And you want to grieve and all of that, but you're just being constantly assaulted, right? By by society yeah. and its expectations. Then how much more difficult it, uh, how much more difficult it must be your your day to day must be, you know mm. what I mean? Like if there is no mercy or no pali during that period of time when you need, you know, more mm-hmm. more humanity from everybody else, you know, then mm-hmm. your day-to-day is just is just kind of grim. Uh, but, yeah, but Marina never gives quarter, never kind of steps back. Every point in time, she's just, you know, um, she just kind of powers through in the kind of, uh, like, a quiet grace. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. Like, the, the scene where she talks to her singing teacher... Mm-hmm. Is yeah, I I I generally like teared up for that. That was yeah. a moving and beautiful scene, and just you know that conversation and that the tender moment at the end of it, the embrace that they held, was mm-hmm. just beautiful. Yeah, um, Daniela Vega had no or had little to no acting experience prior to this uh, feature film role, yeah. you know, uh, and she like absolutely astonishes here. And and the key part of the film's realness is that Vega helped. Uh, rewrite the script by drawing upon her real life experiences, you know, to to express subtle layers of vulnerability or boldness or warmth or concealed fury, mm-hmm. um, you know, much much in the way that Hunter Schaefer helped write like that episode of Euphoria. You know? Yeah. Um, I, I think like like a, a you know a straight white director or in this case you know a, a straight man writing the film wouldn't have really gotten it or gotten the depth from it yeah. without input from Daniela Vega. Uh, and and this I think heartfelt tale of otherness, um, as artful as it may be, would never have been as compelling without Vega's magnetism on screen or her, her insightful perspective behind it. 
Mm, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Um, any final thoughts about uh, a fantastic woman? Uh, before we move on. Uh, I mean, like, I, I, I wish I caught this earlier. Really, like, it, it, I until it was recommended to me by you, like, I, it completely did not show up on my radar at all. Under, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I mean, I think that's a tragedy. Um, yeah, indie films in from America or the UK are already hard to catch, you know, because they are indie and they're under seen and under promoted. Yeah. Uh, let alone like an indie film from Chile, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. It it really is like um. Yeah, so if you're listening to this, like uh, a fantastic woman is a fa- a fantastic film, absolutely yeah. fantastic film, uh, that yeah. deserves your time. Yeah, mm. and if you want to catch more cool Latin America films, we recently did a behold episode about Latin American cinema. Yeah, uh, which I wanted to include a fantastic woman in, but then I decided to kind of shift a fantastic woman to this episode because you know it felt more fitting. Yep. Uh, but yeah, yeah, if you want to catch uh, Latin American cinema and have some recommendations, check out our Behold episode about Latin American cinema where we talked about Roma, uh, City of God, as well as Wild Tales. And you can include uh, a fantastic woman uh, in that discussion as well. Absolutely. Uh, next up, let's talk about uh, a French lesbian film that is not Portrait of a Lady on Fire. <laughs> uh, so like I decided, I, I, I already said like, at the top of the episode, I wanted to talk about Portrait of, uh, Portrait of a Lady on Fire. And then I was like, oh, we already talked about it, so I can't include it here, right? Yeah. So, like, it, it, it instantly, right, I thought of Blue is the Warmest Color because I was thinking, you know, oh, lesbian French painter. Like, oh, Blue, <laughs> Blue, Blue is the Warmest Color is the same story, but, like, contemporary, sort of? Yeah, know? yeah. Free, uh, because, much, you know, like, the, the film uh, that was released in 2013, uh, it follows Adele, who is a French teenager who, yep. who, who, who discovers her desire and, and freedom uh, as a as a lesbian teen, uh, because she meets an aspiring female painter yep. named Emma, who who enters her life, you know, <laughs> and, and, and the film charts their relationship from Adele's high school years to her early adult life and career as a school teacher. Um, the premise of Blue is the Warmest Color it's it's actually an adaptation of a graphic novel mm-hmm. of the same name by by Jewel Morrow. Uh, and this is one of those cool like um non-genre graphic novel adaptations that I really enjoy. Like, you know, um, Ghost World is one, another one. Persepolis, which we'll be talking mm. about in the next episode, it's another one. Yep. Uh, and, and this is one of them as well. Um, one of the big controversies that, that followed the, the release of the film was uh, the raw depiction of sexuality and the yeah. extended uh, sex scenes in, in Blue is the Warmest Color. Um, of course, you know, Blue is the Warmest Color is not just about uh, sexual identity or sexual... Uh, revelation by its, its two characters like, but it's treated as like very matter-of-factly you know like you know lesbians have sex that show it you know it happens yeah uh, and I think the fact that it got such a insane mainstream backlash to it right uh, or clearly shows an amount of prejudice uh, unintentionally so because like if you think about um other sexually prominent films, you know, or TV shows like uh, Normal People, for example, which featured mm. like tons of sex scenes with straight people. Like, it never got that kind of backlash, you know. Uh, and I think it only received that kind of backlash because it was a lesbian couple. Mm. Like, it, it, were you aware that the, you know the backlash existed back then? And, and what did yeah. you think about it? Yeah, uh, I mean, I I was aware that the backlash existed back then. I I do think that from what I understand, uh, while um while reading up about all of that. Uh, when mm-hmm. when the film came out, a lot of it had to do with um, just a lot of discussions about kind of like you know male gaze or patriarchal gaze uh, with the fact that the director is, is straight, um, yep. you know, and that 
there was something extremely uh, it wasn't it wasn't realistic right like mm-hmm. you have a 10 minute sex scene right and then there were things I remember reading something about like uh, the fact that they're changing positions like every 10 seconds and, and that kind of thing which you know sure can boil down to style can boil down to like, like logistical kind of things can mm-hmm. boil down to storytelling sure you know mm-hmm. personally um, as far as it comes to controversy about the sex scene it was really uncomfortable to watch mm. uh, there's something about the way that he chose to shoot it that um, you know was it, it didn't it felt very cold Right, mm. like the entire film around that ten minute, like ten minute thirty seconds, uh, that particular ten minute thirty second sex scene, right, um, is it, it has shades and nuances of warmth and love and and loss and grief and you know like so many full emotional things, but for that ten minutes, I I was taken out of the film. Because it felt so cold, mm. you know, uh, and and that to me didn't maybe it didn't lend credence to the kind of controversy that was going on at that point in time, mm. but it it stood out to me as like this doesn't feel like it belongs as part of this film, mm. um, you know, uh, as a whole, right? Blue is the warmest color. I think it's a great film, mm. right? Like it's it's really long, a bit over long if you ask me, but understandable for the kind of story that it's trying to tell. Uh, it's three hours long, right? And in the midst of these three hours, like by and large, I enjoyed almost everything that's there, except for the sex scene, um, mm. just because it didn't feel like it fit, right? Mm. Uh, and 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 that that is my biggest criticism of it. Uh, if we had removed that one sex scene, mm-hmm. perhaps I don't think I would have missed it at all. Mm. Um, you know, but just just kind of my hot take on that. Um. And, and so, like, while um, in in the aftermath of kind of watching this and, like, kind of struggling to understand why I felt that way, you know, I just began to, like, search online, what people were saying, you know, how people felt about it and all of that. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I I mean, I, I'm, I'm not, you know, I'm not a woman, I'm not a lesbian, mm-hmm. right? So I can't speak to the fact whether or not that it is, that it needed, you know, um, a, a, a viewpoint of, of that, for that matter, right? Like, you needed a, a lesbian to chime in for that. Mm-hmm. Um, fact or anything of the sort but you know yep. like a lot of the criticisms that it received because of that particular sex scene mm-hmm. I mean like, I could understand why like it was mm. coming about yeah 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 you know but like uh, it's a bit um, short-sighted to judge like that entire this entire like magnificent film on, on that one sex scene that may Yo. not land for some and may land for others you know yeah for sure Um, it's it's a very like you know searingly intimate and and daringly observant portrait of this French teenager and her, her passionate relationship with, with another woman. Yeah. Um, post-screening chatter, it like, you know, inevitably swirls around the sex scenes, but mm-hmm. you know, the galvanizing performances of, of both lead actresses uh, are to be commended. You know, um, it's, it's so great in, in other ways. I feel oh, yeah, like it's, it's, a, it's, it's a very naturalistic um, observant film that is fascinated with life's great shared pleasures, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, sex is part of it, but there's food, and there's mm. art, conversations about literature and music uh, and stuff like that. You know, it encourages the viewer to consider the commonality uh, as well as the vast complexity of the human experience, whether you do have the sa- same sexual orientation or not, you know. Yeah. 
um, it's it's a scrutiny of the human condition, you know, like your capacity to live or to love, to eat, to learn, to share, to grow. Uh, that does so much to lure the viewer into its you know narrative orbit and and rope you in with um, brute emotional force. You know, yep. um, there are scattered bits of you know. Um, heavy-handedness here and there but uh, on the whole i think like adele's evolution as a woman mm-hmm. and as a as a person as she moves through uh, different lovers arms unfolds in a most organic manner um i feel like at every turn and transition the film assumes in its uh, near decade long span right you know yeah. i think it, it's faithfully earned in large part due to the performances of the women mm-hmm. uh, and the uncanny ability to display their character's conscience uh, across, you know, your your physical countenance, you know, um, whether you're talking about music and art or whether you're having sex or whether, you know, you're doing like the most mundane things, mundane things like sharing a beer in a bar, you know. Yeah. Um, it's stylized but also naturalistic, impressive by both women. Um, I think, you know, their breakup also feels very natural. I feel like every one of us has had like breakups like that. It felt very real and not like put upon mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. or narratively false, you know. Um, and, and the charting of Adele's growth, you know, in this film uh, through, yes, you know, the sex, but also through dance, through conversations, you know. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's pivotal. And it, it, the, the way it moves to its final act, you know, uh, where Adele finally like has a sense of self, uh, vis-a-vis her, the state of the world, you know, it, it's conveyed not through dialogue in the end, but through sequences of movement, you know, like it ends with a dance sequence, right? You know, she's mm-hmm. finally comfortable with herself. It's in these watchful moments that Blue is the Woman's Colour finds its greatest strength. Yeah. Uh, and there's plenty of these to be had, uh, lest we forget that, you know, sex consumes only 10 of its 180 minutes. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I, again, right, like there's so many great things about this film. And it's just an outstanding performance by the two leading ladies. Um, and and it, it just feels like they put so much into this. You know, mm-hmm. it shows up on screen. I think especially yeah. the, the breakup part is is one of the most painful and, and warm, tender, heartbreaking things all mixed into one scene that mm-hmm. I've, I've seen in, in a long time. Um. And and, and and that's just like it, it's powerful in the way that it feels uh so apt and so right. Uh or it feels so natural, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, it doesn't shy away from from showing uh the fullness of everything that the, these characters are going through in those exchanges, which which I think is great. Yeah. Uh the reason we are not um saying like the actress's name is because I just have no idea how to pronounce it. I, uh, I am I am so scared to mispronounce every single person's name here. Um, yeah, anyway. like like one of them, like Adele, like actress, like her last name has like five syllables. I'm not kidding; it's insane. I yeah. do. I'm not gonna try to butcher your name, but yeah. I respect your work. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. It was so difficult, but like you know, overall, right? I feel like Blue Is the Warmest Color is a very simple, uh, even even you might say predictable story, mm. but but it it's it's textured and so exquisitely acted uh, yeah. and so forcefully emotional that it feels revelatory you know it's always persuasive uh and and dreamy and desirous uh but also you know sometimes surprising with its depth um yeah. there are moments of stunning ferocity here uh moments of you know uh quietness and and gracefulness also uh there is so much artistry uh to 
the performances and to the filmmaking uh that it's it's I think one of the best uh, naturalistic films of this sort that I that I saw early on, lah. You know, mm-hmm. like at this point, like I wasn't really into my ooh, <laughs> natural naturalism is like my thing, you know. Uh, yeah. Milieu, you know, like I hadn't, I not like gotten into like Florida Project and Chloe Zhao and all of that. This was 2013, you know, like yeah. a long time ago, and I was much younger also, and like less uh, aware. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this really put me into the shoes, uh, much like Moonlight, like, and all these other films of like experiences that I have not had, uh, and it made it so vibrant and helped me understand it uh, better. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and that that's the key to I think stories that they're all like you know what what's the cliche term? They're empathy machines, right? They help you <laughs> understand different different perspectives. Um, and as taxing as the 170 180 minute runtime is, I think. Like every minute of it helps you understand something that you don't mm-hmm. uh, necessarily yeah. understand. So you know, in a sense, it ends its run. It it earns its runtime. Yeah, yeah, it it definitely does, right? Like we, mm-hmm. uh, a lot of the time, especially for me, I think like when films go past like two hour fifteen, two hour two and a half hours, yeah. you know, you know, you you hear me saying that you know it's overlong. The story doesn't need that much of a runtime and all of that. Mm-hmm. But I do mm-hmm. think blue is the warmest color is one of the few exceptions to that, just because that um, for the for the three hour runtime, that there's plenty in there, right? Mm-hmm. Um, that deserves to be in there, that needs to be in there for you to kind of understand this very kind of well rounded, very full, very natural um, story, right? Like yeah. of, of two people in love uh, mm-hmm. and falling out of love. Uh, um, and, yeah. Yeah, me personally, like going to the film, yeah. like when I first saw it in 2013, I was so intimidated by the runtime to the point where I kept putting off watching it. Uh, and oh, I feel yeah. like a lot of people, a lot of people are the same way. They will sometimes Google uh, movie title runtime on Google. Yeah. You know, and then and then they're like, <laughs> oh no, like this is like, uh, how long is the Snyder Cut again? Should I watch it? Uh, but then the, at the same time, you know, like when I started watching Blue is the Warmest Color, like this, it flew by for me. Like I yeah. didn't. I didn't feel it in much in the same way like The Godfather is three fucking hours long uh, <laughs> and I didn't, The Godfather part two is three hours and 22 minutes you know I didn't feel a second of it yep. you know, like sometimes movies earn like the the patience that you need to watch it and uh, Blue's The Woman's Color is, is, is one of them absolutely yeah I totally agree with that I agree with that I mean like uh, there have been times where it's it, it, we say like a one and a half hour movie feels like too long you know like it, sometimes. It, it's nothing to do With the actual runtime itself, and everything to do with what they do with that runtime. Yeah, how it's told, the pacing of it, the editing of it, the performances of it. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, and, and I've definitely. Seen, mm-hmm. I've seen plenty of ninety-minute movies that are just like it. It felt like the Snyder Cut, like, You know what I mean? Yeah, like, like <laughs> what you're saying. Yeah, I, I I'm sure we've said that a number of times, right? Where where ninety minutes it just feels overlong, which is a sad thing to say. Mm-hmm. You know, given that a lot of the time it feels like many filmmakers. Would rather have more time than not, you know. Mm. Uh, and you hear about these like ridiculous number of hours that have been cut down, um, you know, to, just to be able to be screened in cinemas and stuff like that. But yep. that being said, with the way things are, with the way things are right now with streaming and all of that, uh, I don't know. Maybe that will change. Uh, maybe people will be more open to the idea. I mean, people seem to be taking the Army of the Dead, which was definitely overlong. Yep. Um. You know, but when you're stuck at home in a pandemic, and mm. you know the movie comes straight to you, maybe two and a half hours isn't that much of a stretch. 
anymore. The keyword there is at home. You're able to take breaks. You're able yeah. to um, do some ironing or watching it. You can bring you can bring your laptop to the toilet and you know, stuff like that. It's it's the sitting in three hours or four hours in a cinema that scares me. You know? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I, I think like uh, a- anything that that's more than two hours is 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 absolutely frightening. Frightening. Um, yeah, yeah. Even the, like uh, when was it? I think when. The final Lord of the Rings came out, and they were screening kind of like the marathon things. Oh god! Oh yeah, it was gonna take like a full day, man. Yeah, and, I, and people were just like, hey, "We should go for that. We should go for that." And I was just like, I, "I, I don't know if I can, you know, yeah. <laughs> like, if I can actually like survive through all of that." Uh, yes, and it's not like yeah, like you know, Japanese know when you're allowed to kind of like doze off in the middle, and that's like completely respectable mm. thing to do. You know why? You know I think I think like they should bring back intermissions once the pandemic is over and they are long films. Yeah, but okay. So here's the thing: where who decides where the intermissions should be? Right? Is it true? Is it the filmmaker who decides? True. Right. Okay. So certain things like have natural kind of things. So if we let's let's say Snyder Cut for example, divided into chapters, mm-hmm. obvious breakpoints where you could possibly have intermissions. You know. Yeah. Um, but I'm not sure, like, yeah, it's possible for all films that are long. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I before anyone says, comes at me at the, like, comment section, right, <laughs> I fully understand the logistics of modern cinema going, right? The reason that they're cutting down films is so that they can replay it as many times as possible, so yep. distributors and chains can earn as much money as possible. Yep. They don't want a three-hour film because they can't replay it as many times in a day. Yes. That's the issue. I totally understand that. Back in the day, when they had, did have intermissions, there were, like, one to two releases every three months. You know That's true, I mean? yeah. You know, like that's why, like where, like when our grandparents went to watch Gone with the Wind, right? Like you could take a half an hour break in between the film and like have a wine at the bar. You know what I mean? <laughs> like it's 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 just not the same now. I totally get that. Like, I'm just saying that, like you know, for a purely selfish point of view, with no business interests, I wish there were more. There were intermissions, sir. Well, with the way things are now with the cinema industry, right? Like, yeah. you know, maybe that's something they have gonna have to consider because moving forward. When, when when the world comes back to some semblance of you know us being able to go to cinemas and enjoy things on the big yeah. screen, right? It's not going to be the same anymore. We're going to be really really accustomed to having big TVs at home or projectors at home with you know com- comparable sound systems, and yeah. anything we want to fucking watch at the tip of our fingers, mm-hmm. you know. So I don't know. Like they need to shake it up really. Um, mm-hmm. Otherwise, like I don't know how they're going to survive as we as you know technology and, and st- streaming as a, as a medium kind of like grows yeah, yeah. Uh, we've discussed it many times before uh, but like uh, cinema is probably going like print is gonna <laughs> die because uh, just a new technology is just overwhelming them and cinema in the last 40-50 years has done nothing to innovate like yeah. they've not helped at all yeah okay you have better sound you have a wider screen blah 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 it's you just like you haven't done enough lah to, yeah. to, to keep up with the times and yeah. it may be its own problem you know that's the reason why nobody like flags a taxi on the road anymore you know? yeah like, it's, it's like <laughs> uber and grab came along so yeah i mean just just saying i have nothing against cinema obviously no 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 obviously file. right yeah. like it is i i think we're both um both of the opinion that it the cinema experience is extremely important right like there are good things and bad things about that there are mm. some films that you absolutely should if you are able to watch it in a cinema right much like uh, A Quiet Place 2 which, we, which we'll be catching in cinema 
Correct. Um, sound design important. Yeah, yeah, sound design is important and like if if you happen to catch a quiet place, the first one in a cinema, you will know exactly why you have to watch the second one in the cinema as well. It's right? a because it's a different experience, yeah. It, yeah, it is a collective experience, right? There is something about an entire cinema of people being absolutely quiet because mm. of how terrified they are. Uh, and afraid to make a sound. And that is one of the most refreshing experiences and new experiences that I've ever had in the cinema um, mm. uh, in my life. Like, absolutely. Uh, you know, one of the most fascinating things that I've ever had to experience. And you can't have that alone at mm. home. Um, yeah, yeah. My A Quiet Place, like, one experience was just, like, I spent 45 minutes trying to open a Kinder Boy, you know? Uh, <laughs> and I had, like, d- d- I had just a terrible... Like, every time I tried to open it, I, it just made a sound. Yeah. And I kept waiting for moments where I could, and I just couldn't. Oh, yeah. You know, like, like, the first time I watched Quiet Place, like, the whole thing going on, it's like, can I eat my Kinder Boy or not? <laughs> <laughs> no, I totally understand. Uh, I think I had... I can't remember what it was. I had some... Maybe an onigiri or something like that. Yeah. Or, or something of the sort, right? Where I'm just struggling with the packaging and there was absolutely no point in time. You always wait for the time where, you know, this is like a swell of hot, like violence or some like, mm. you know, electronic soundtrack coming in for you to kind of like get away with that. But uh, a yeah. place never allows you that. Yeah, and, and there's one, one moment in a waterfall and that, or that was it. Yeah, pretty much, pretty yeah. much. I had a guy that was sitting next to me who yeah. was trying to eat his popcorn as quietly as possible. And it was hilariously funny because he would put the popcorn in his mouth and then like very gently chew Chew. so that it wouldn't crunch on the way down. And I just found that hilarious. It was was so funny. Yeah. Yeah. You know, so so maybe like if filmmakers or cinemas try to innovate, you know, more films like that. Yeah. Uh, then cinema would would, would thrive, la. Um, but yeah, I mean, we we kind of digress past the point of like blue is the warmest color. My point was that it's long. But give it a chance. Yeah, it's long, and you, yeah, please, please give it a chance. Um, you know, uh, be I, I, I think just come in, into it with kind of an open mind. I, I think like the controversy about the the mm. the graphic sex and all of that, um, did overwhelm, um, you know, a, any sort of like great reviews that it actually got right. Like that kind of like came to the surface. You know what the internet is like, mm-hmm. um. But like, still, regardless of what my personal opinion is about that particular scene, right? I still mm-hmm. think this is a great movie that deserves three hours of your time. Yeah, and yeah, we don't 100%. say that often, guys. So definitely, definitely, yeah. uh, we will be back in a couple of weeks for a Refugee Week special, where yep. we uh, commemorate uh, Refugee Week as we take a look at some of the powerful films and series mm-hmm. that humanize the refugee experience or the asylum experience. Uh, this includes uh, Iran's Persepolis, uh, Syria's Fosama. Yeah. Uh, America's Immigration Nation and Bosnia's Kovadis Ada, uh, f- just for the films that I feel uh, lend empathy to the refugee experience. Uh, and if you are, you know, slightly xenophobic out there, maybe try to. Uh, it, it gives you a, a little glimpse into how difficult it must be for the other side. You know, like yeah. don't be so cold-hearted la, when people ask you for help, even if they're not from your country. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Uh, so yeah, we'll be talking about Persepolis for Sama Immigration Nation in Kovadis Eta in a couple of weeks. And then we'll be back for general equality at the beginning of next month. Uh, till then, this has been Hit Zero. I'm uh, Misa. Uh, goodbye, guys. Ciao.